Welcome to ReachMD. This medical industry feature titled, Putting the Puzzle Together in Axial Disease, Assessment and Management of Axial Features in Patients with AXSBA and AXPSA, is sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program where we have two presentations. In the first presentation will be Spa Discussion, Putting the Puzzle Together in Axial Disease, Assessment and Management of Axial Features in Patients with Axial Spa and Axial PSA. I am Christopher Richland from the University of Rochester Medical Center, and this evening I will be joined by Atul Devdar from the Oregon Health Science University School of Medicine, Portland, Oregon, Philip Meese from the Providence St. Joseph Health Systems and University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, Washington, and Alexis Ogdebeide uh, from the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia. Now, I should say that we're actually all in different locations and uh, putting this program together, but through the magic of technology, we're all going to be on one stage, which is really quite exciting. Here are uh, the disclosures. This presentation is sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs, and all speakers have been compensated for their time and the individual disclosures are under the, uh, the speaker's names. The spinal arthritis spectrum is composed of both axial and peripheral subtypes as shown on this slide. So on the left we see those disorders that are predominantly associated with axial disease and they include non-radiographic spa and ankylosing spondylitis. On the right we see those disorders that are associated with peripheral disease and this includes psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, inflammatory disease, bowel disease-associated arthritis, and undifferentiated peripheral spa. This shows the overview of the spondyloarthritis spectrum of disease with multiply diverse clinical features that include enthesitis, peripheral arthritis, dactylitis, axial involvement, uh, and psoriasis, as well as other features such as acute anterior uveitis, inflammatory bowel disease, good response to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, a positive family history, and many patients are positive for the class 1 allele HLA-B27. So I'd now like to discuss the pathophysiology of axial involvement. In spondyloarthritis, biomechanical stress and inflammatory factors, including infectious antigens amplified by a major histocompatibility complex MHC susceptibility genes, human leukocyte antigen HLA-B27 variants, and endoplasmic reticulum aminopeptidase ERAP1, single nucleotide polymorphism transcription factors, induce specific cell types to produce a series of inflammatory cytokines, including interleukin-23, interleukin-17, TNF, IL-1, and IL-6. Hematopoietic stem cells elaborate rank ligand and NF-kappa-B, as well as MCSF, to differentiate monocytes to osteoclasts, which extend inflammatory damage in the sacroiliac and peripheral joints. Mesenchymal stem cells facilitated by Wnt and bone morphogenetic protein, or BMP, differentiate to osteoblasts to form new bone and ankyloses. Here in this slide, we illustrate IL-23 dependent and independent production of IL-17A. Despite interleukin-23 being a key driver in the induction of IL-17 producing Th7T cells, inhibition of IL-23 has failed to show efficacy in axial spondyloarthritis, or AXPA. IL-17 can be produced by several different sources in spinal antheses. Emerging evidence supports the cellular basis for IL-17 production that is independent of IL-23. 
IL-23 receptor positive and negative subpopulation of gamma delta T cells have been identified in human spinous processes and theses. Figure A shows mass on trichone stain section showing the area of the spine harvested for analysis of patients with spondyloarthritis or SPA. Outer edges of the spinous process are labeled perianthesial bone or PEB and their interspinous ligament labeled anthesial soft tissue or EST. Figure B shows positive staining of gamma delta T cells that were observed in anthesial tissue at the bone soft tissue border. Figure C shows positive staining of gamma delta T cells as in the PEB anchoring region of hematopoietic bone marrow. This is a cartoon that illustrates both the IL-23 dependent and independent production of IL-17A. One can see here that the blue is IL-23 dependent and the uh, black is IL-23 independent. And so you can see that the TH17 cells and uh, TC17 or CD817 cells can uh, really act by, uh, through initiation and persistence differently in terms of being IL-23 independent or IL-23 dependent in blue. We see that there are other innate cells, ILC3 or innate lymphocyte uh, cells type 3, innate NKT cells, gamma delta T cells, and mate cells, which can act via the IL-23 independent, although gamma delta T cells can also act through an IL-23 dependent pathway. So it's important to understand that there are different ways for cells to produce IL-17 that can be both IL-23 dependent or IL-23 independent. Now that we've heard a summary of the pathophysiology of axial spondyloarthritis, I'd like to move to the discussion, and I want to start with a question to Atul. Can you share a case of a patient with axial spa who experienced a delay in diagnosis? And what clinical features did they present with? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Chris. Um, I'm going to present a case of a 44-year-old gentleman. And he was referred to the rheumatology clinic because he had chronic buttock pain, left buttock pain, and arthritis, quote-unquote. And the internal medicine uh, physician who was looking after him found that he was HLA-B27 positive. Now, this gentleman is very healthy and very active. I mean, I would say, actually, he's very athletic. He completed an Ironman Canada race in July of 2013. <clears throat> and post-Ironman race, he started getting this pain in his left buttock. And next 18 months, he went through this period when his quality of life had dramatically deteriorated because of this pain, because his life evolved around running and jogging and biking and hiking and swimming, etc., etc., And this pain would really, really bother him. He first went to his primary care doctor who referred him to physical therapy and that didn't work. So he went himself to chiropractor. Then he went to osteopath and that did not work. He went to orthopedic surgeon. That didn't work. Went to a family practice sports medicine clinic, which actually injected his uh, buttock region with steroids first and then with prolotherapy, his own blood. Nothing worked. <clears throat> Went back to his primary care doctor after all these 18 months of going from pillar to post. He tried rest. He tried different therapies, as I said, physical therapy, etc. Non-steroidals alleviated pain to a certain extent, not dramatically. And at that last visit after 18 months, back to his primary care, they did his investigation and they found that he was HLA-B27 positive. So he was referred to rheumatology. 
And I have taken this directly from my rheumatology fellow's note. <clears throat> and this is the importance of how we rheumatologists should really approach a patient like this. I'm very proud of this fellow. She asked him, okay, I understand your problem started after the Ironman race, but tell me what happened before that. And the patient said that, you know, it's interesting you ask me because I always had this low back pain. I always had this left buttock pain <clears throat> back to my mid-20s. And then the patient gave very classical history of inflammatory back pain only because rheumatology fellow was the first doctor to ask him these questions. The pain awakened him at night, worsened with rest, improved with activity. At that stage, in his 20s and 30s, he could take ibuprofen, naproxen, full dose. That would relieve the pain completely. His stiffness was only 30 minutes, not 60 minutes is what we would think with inflammatory back pain. And he also had chronic bilateral Achilles tendon pain. <clears throat> he couldn't remember whether they were swollen or not. He chalked all of that to his active lifestyle. No uveitis, no psoriasis, no inflammatory bowel disease, no nothing. Now this is mid-20s. Now this guy is 44 years old. You can find out it's 20 years or more have passed through that. And everybody is fixated on this post-Ironman injury to his buttock tendon. When the fellow examined him, they, she found that he had bilateral Achilles tendon insertion tenderness, tender on sacroiliac joint, which is not that specific, tender on the ischial tuberosity and the piriformis area. And we uh, <clears throat> looked at his pelvic MRI, which was done by the family practice doctors way back, which actually had shown my minimal tendinopathy of the origin of the left conjoint hamstring tendon, no tear. That was his diagnosis which is the reason why he was getting these buttock injections of steroids and prilotherapy, etc. X-ray of his sacral joint was normal. We simply asked them to send us those images pushed to our radiology, and we found out that his left sacral joint showed classical changes of bone marrow edema, fatty changes, and in fact, erosions, his buttock pain. Maybe it was also coming from his hamstring tendon, <clears throat> but most of it was coming from his left sacroiliac joint. This is a delay of 20 plus years in a man who actually never really said that my main problem is backache because for him it wasn't. He is so athletic, he doesn't want to complain and he goes from pillar to post because of his pain in the buttock. So this gentleman definitely had significant amount of damage to his sacroiliac joint as shown by the erosions. So he actually had non-radiographic axial SPA. Chris? The question I wanted to ask you, Atula, was I see this delay in diagnosis being very common in very athletic young people because they deal with a pain by get it being engaged in sports like your patient. Do you find this yeah. to be a rather common event? Yeah, we have somehow in rheumatology said that these patients present with low back pain. <clears throat> this patient did have low back pain, but his presentation was not that unless you asked him that. His pres presentation was buttock pain and they call it hip pain. And of course, he had other peripheral spondyloarthritis, uh, typical enthesitis in his Achilles tendon, etc., etc. And this is very important because <clears throat> he went over 20 years without complaining about this. And then he only complained after it became so bad <clears throat> that he couldn't really do his day-to-day -day activities. And the non-steroidals, which used to work completely, stopped working completely after 20 years of giving him some relief. And, I would say that the main reason why, I mean, there are multiple reasons why there is a delay in diagnosis. There are, in my mind, there are three major reasons of delay in diagnosis. Number one is that 
chronic back pain is very common. We looked at the enhanced data and about nearly 20%, one-fifth of the U.S. population has chronic back pain at any given time, 19.4% to be exact. That's number one. Number two, we don't have a good way of diagnosing this. There is no good biomarker to diagnose axial spondyloarthritis. And number three is that outside of rheumatology, the other physicians who take care of back pain, they are not as much in tuned with the advances that have happened in axial spondyloarthritis. So back in 2016, we did literature review and found that 60% of the patients <clears throat> for their backache would see their general practitioners, primary care doctors, about one third would see orthopedists and another one third would see chiropractors before, if at all, they come to rheumatology. There is another study we did around the same time which actually we looked at the insurance claims database and found that the median time from symptom to rheumatology referral was nearly a year, which I, we thought that is impossible. I mean, that's overtly optimistic because then another study we were involved in called PROSPA, and that was a study of patients being referred to rheumatologists for backache for suspicion of axial SPA, and that was more representative where we found that in the United States, the delay in diagnosis could be as long as 14 years. These people have suffered with their backache. <clears throat> from start of their symptom to their getting diagnosis, nearly 14 years. It is unbelievable how long this prolongation is. Atul, thanks so much for giving us a detailed uh, explanation of uh, why diagnosis is often delayed. I guess the other question related to that is, why is delayed diagnosis an ongoing concern for patients with axial spa? Yeah, I mean, so A, people suffer unnecessarily for long periods of time because this is the condition for there are excellent therapies available to treat. And these people go from pillar to post undergoing various therapies for mechanical back pain, which does not really touch their immune-mediated inflammatory problem that they are happening in, in their back. And then there are certain countries which actually have tried to tackle this, and I can give a couple of examples. One is Germany, one is Great Britain. There, in Germany especially, they have kind of taught what is when to refer patients to rheumatology. So the referral strategy um, has been very well um, denoted in, in, in Germany and also in, um, in Great Britain. And what they have found out is once they taught the other physicians, namely, uh, orthopedic surgeons, physiatrists, even physical therapists, primary care physicians, when to refer the patient to rheumatologists, the delay in diagnosis became less. It used to be seven years or something, and then it now gone down to about three years, two to three years in Germany, and similar drop in Great Britain. Now, we don't have such a referral strategy in the U.S. Spartan, which is Spondylarthritis Research and Treatment Network, is about to take on such a referral strategy, and I think that is what is going to help the other providers who see patients with back pain to refer patients to rheumatology, appropriate patients to rheumatology with some telltale signs, and that is going to reduce this delay in diagnosis. Chris? And Chris, if, uh, this is Philip. If I could just add a, a, a one other point. Notice uh, the age of this particular patient. Uh, he was yeah. experiencing this uh, in his 20s and 30s and early 40s, in the prime of his life, of his work life. And we know uh, from multiple studies that there are problems with productivity in the workplace, enjoyment of, of activities at home, 
Uh, and so in addition to treating the, the fact that we're not treating his symptoms, it, it has a profound effect on uh, the society at large because of decline in work productivity because of the uh, manifestations of the disease. Thank you, Atul and Philip. I would like to ask the panel what programs in other countries have been successful in accelerating referrals to a rheumatologist? What strategies have and have not worked? And what are some common elements contributing to misdiagnosis and delay in diagnosis by rheumatologists? So as I said, the um, commonest misdiagnosis is mechanical backache. I mean, mechanical backache is very common. So our axial spondyloarthritis patients get diluted in the mechanical back pain uh, number of patients that there are. And the second thing, of course, as I said earlier, we don't have, or the primary care doctors don't have, or nobody has a very good biomarker to suspect. I mean, HLA-B27 could be one of them. But HLA-B27 is found in 7.5% of white Caucasian population. So if you take 100 people with uh, HLA-B27, only five of them will have this condition. So we don't have very good biomarkers. And the education of these non-rheumatology providers, that we, we need to educate them more since we have very good treatments. And the strategies which have worked are the referral strategies. Referral strategies then tell the primary care provider that if there is inflammatory back pain type of symptoms, number one, if they have got backache and psoriasis, if they have got backache and uveitis, if they have got backache and IBD, if they have got this unexplained perpetual sports medicine type of injury, which really is enthesitis for no reason and nothing is working, think that there may be something wrong. This might be immune mediated. And those types of strategies have worked in Germany and in Britain. And we need to have such a strategy in the United States. A tool, if I can also add to that too, I think one of the other things that we need to think about is getting this as a part of training for orthopedics, as a part of training for physiatrists and for chiropractors so that they're thinking about this early in their training and it's not something they're trying to learn after they're already in practice. I think we have more impact at the training phase. And, and, and thank you, uh, Alexis, for that. And in fact, that's precisely what Germany did with German rheumatologists, at least in Berlin, they in fact did lots of meetings, lots of educational programs in Berlin that I'm aware of. And that's where, because of their education of all these other providers, their delay in diagnosis has been nearly half. From seven years, it has come down to three years, three and a half years, or even less in certain situations. Similar uh, study has been shown in Britain also that the delay in diagnosis has been reduced just by having proper referral strategies being and, and these people being educated, the other uh, providers that you mentioned. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that in England also, correct me if I'm wrong, Atul, uh, that physiotherapists have been very much involved in some of the referrals, yep. uh, and that's proven to be very successful, correct? Great point, and also in Canada. So uh, this is now, and, and I don't know in all over Britain, but certainly in areas where there are people in Bath uh, is where you're talking about where, of course, the ankylosing spondylitis was being researched for a very long time. Physical therapists or physiotherapists, um, and also in Canada, because that's, again, where the patients go, and that's where the physiotherapist can get the history. And if the history suggests you of Inflammatory back pain, again, inflammatory back pain is not a disease. Inflammatory back pain is just a symptom. Only 15% of people will have, of inflammatory back pain would have axial SPA. Having said that, that should really make them think 
maybe there is something else going on like our 44 year old gentleman he had classical it was waking him at night in his 20s and 30s great response to non-steroidal exercise would get it better rest would get it worse i mean this is so classic i mean you know that's the time when they should have sent him to see is this really because of his running and jogging or is this something else going on and that's what has been taught to physical therapists that has been taught to chiropractors and uh, physiatrists etc and what I'd like to I'd add too. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to throw out there too that I, I think it's not always that they're being um, misdiagnosed by non rheumatology providers. Sometimes actually rheumatologists are missing the diagnosis or saying <laughs> this is probably related to other things going on. Great point. Um, one of the things that I see a lot is that people are getting lumbar spine films right. and then stopping right. and saying there's nothing there, so you don't have ankylosing spondylitis. Wonderful. Not doing yeah. any workup of the pelvis, so, for example. Alexis, you make a great point because the PROSPA study, in which that was a study where patients were referred to rheumatologists with a suspicion of axial SPA, and we were supposed to do the investigation and say which people have axial SPA, which don't, in which we found out there is this 14 years delay. In that study, nearly half of the patients, 47% of the patients we found, were in fact the rheumatologist's existing practice. These people were in the rheumatologist's practice for years, being misdiagnosed, and they were just being followed by the rheumatologist for chronic back pain. And then I think that problem is getting less and less. Spartan and Grappa have done this invest the uh, symposia, which actually have educated rheumatologists. Um, there are these more um, newer drugs coming into the market. Rheumatologists are awakening to idea of non-radiographic axial SPA. Rheumatologists are also uh, awakening to the idea that it is more common in women. And that's my next case. If Chris will allow me, I'll tell you about that next case, which also brings to this point how it is missed in women. So, be, yeah, so before we go there, I'd just like to comment on the page, case you just presented. How did you distinguish between non-radiographic XBAR or AS in that yeah. patient? Yeah, so that distinction is very arbitrary. That distinction is purely dependent upon the X-ray of the sacroiliac joints. Ankylosing spondylitis, to call somebody ankylosing spondylitis, they have to fulfill the modified New York criteria, which means they have to have at least bilateral grade 2 sacroiliitis or grade 3 or 4 or anything higher than that is AS. If they do not have bilateral grade 2 sacroiliitis, that becomes non-radiographic. What I want to uh, say here very quickly is in day-to-day -day practice, it does not really matter whether it is non-radiographic or ankylosing spondylitis. The treatment to me is very same and similar Non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis depends upon the sacroiliac joint inflammation as we see, or actually the post-inflammation, it's the sacroiliitis, the degree of sacroiliitis, and that is very subjective. If I see the x-ray and you see the x-ray, uh, um, uh, Chris or Philip and Alexis see the x-ray, we'll, between four of us we'll have multiple opinions. But to answer to your question, it is purely dependent upon the sacroiliitis uh, level of that x-ray. <clears throat> so let's go on to your next case, Satul. Yeah, so the next case is also very interesting because this actually tells us what is happening now. In women, also the non-radiographic, since we're talking about that, non-radiographic axial SPA is as common in women as it is in men. Ankylosing spondylitis is more common in men, suggesting that the progression from non-radiographic to radiographic is much more in men. So male sex is a risk factor. This is a 34-year-old lady who was referred by the primary care physician for lupus. All right? She had hip pain, ankle pain, low back pain, all kinds of pain, pain everywhere. And 
initially they thought that this lady probably has uh, fibromyalgia, but then as I will show in the next slide, her ANA was positive. She visited Mexico in 2016, had dysentery, myalgia, fatigue, severe left buttock pain, again left buttock pain, severe pain in buttocks, ankle, thoracic spine, and chest in the last four years. The chest pain was so severe that she actually went to the emergency room a couple of times worrying that she had a heart attack. Cardiac workup was negative, and she was told that this is chest wall pain. This is not coming from your heart or your lungs. So when the primary care doctor, of course, she had all kinds of aches and pains. She's a young woman. Her ANA is positive, 1280, and she has got low titer anti-double-stranded DNA positive. So she was referred to me as lupus and generalized aches and pains. And generally, we tend to think these people, women, if there is nothing uh, lupus-related, this probably is fibromyalgia. All lupus connected tissue disease-related history was negative, but she was excruciatingly tender on touching the rib cage. Iliac crest, this is a very interesting thing that I found. Iliac crest is not generally tender in fibromyalgia, ladies. Uh, this is no synovitis, but, but there was something in the history, and all this started after that dysentery. I thought this could have been a reactive arthritis type of situation, etc. Plain x-ray, as shown here, is completely normal. Uh, sacroiliac joints are very well preserved. And then I got an MRI done. These are two slices on the left and on the right, two different slices, one after the other. She has badness. <laughs> That's my radiologist said. She has badness on this x-ray. She has significant, not only there is significant bone marrow edema, but if you look on the left, well, actually the patient's right sacroiliac joint and even the left sacroiliac joint, even on this this is actually a stir image. This is a fat suppressed T2 wetted image. But even on this, you can actually see erosions in bilateral sacroiliac joints. She has significant erosions. She has got significant bilateral sacroiliitis. This is non-radiographic axial SPA because her plain X-ray is normal. That X-ray that I showed you doesn't show any grade 2 sacroiliitis. And here is the point that in women, they have been missed as fibromyalgia. They have been called all kinds of stuff. And, uh, but the history was of that of enthesitis everywhere. And all of this started after dysentery. And this rib cage pain and this pain, I mean, generally women don't go to the emergency room with fibromyalgia for their chest pain and all this kind of stuff. So this was another thing opening our eyes that it is also common in women. We shouldn't be missing this. Thank you, Atul. I'm going to turn to Philip now. What are the different imaging modalities available to evaluate axial disease and distinguish between the two types of ax spa? Atul has uh, addressed this uh, already. And uh, uh, just to re reiterate, we typically start with uh, x-ray evaluation because radi radiography units are ubiquitous and, and it's, uh, they're less expensive. It's easier to obtain. Uh, a problem uh, that was pointed out by Alexis is that typically uh, a patient will come in to me and they'll have had three different sets of lumbar spine films, uh, but no evaluation of the pelvis and the sacroiliac joints per se. And uh, especially uh, when we're starting to get into patients as they age a bit, uh, we've missed the diagnosis for a while, they're, they're in their 40s or 50s, uh, the, you can start to see degenerative changes on x-ray of the lumbar spine and be and too easily attribute the back pain to that. So a, a key is to start with a, a radiograph. Uh, in, in my uh, practice, if we have a, a normal appearing pelvis, the sacroiliac joints look normal or nearly normal. 
we're not seeing a pathology necessarily in the hips or the symphysis pubis, then we will move on to uh, obtaining an MRI scan. And MRI gives us much more detail, uh, much more uh, ability to tell about uh, current active inflammation uh, as well as damage. X-rays really are uh, primarily to show us evidence of prior inflammation and, and, and now current damage. Sometimes CT scans can be done. Uh, historically, we've shied away from them because of the amount of radiation exposure involved. But uh, there's, there's been a, a move to using low-dose uh, uh, CT scanning uh, as, a, as a way of telling about uh, bone damage as well as uh, uh, diagnostic purposes. But I would say the major ones are X-ray and MRI. Uh, and this uh, gives us a bit more uh, detail about uh, what we've just been talking about. Uh, we know that, uh, especially at the very beginning of the development of axial spinal arthritis, uh, oftentimes uh, the patients will have negative x-rays of their sacroiliac joints. There just hasn't been enough time and inflammation for damage to occur. So it's incorrect to assume that all patients with, uh, who are, quote, non-radiographic are eventually going to become ankylosing spondylitis. That's not the case. Uh, as we uh, track uh, the disease over time, uh, we will see uh, uh, increasing evidence of, uh, of sacroiliac joint changes on x-ray. Uh, uh, and then also here we're seeing uh, evidence of MRI inflammation. So let's look at these images. Uh, if we focus in on C, for example, to start with, uh, this uh, it corresponds to the patient that a tool just showed us with dramatic light up uh, in the uh, bone adjacent to the sacroiliac joints uh, and uh, some erosive change as well. Uh, in uh, image B, uh, we're, we're not showing that kind of change. And then on D and E, we're seeing some of the radiographic changes with uh, uh, the sacroiliac joints on both sides showing uh, periarticular sclerosis some joint space narrowing, uh, as well as some erosive change. And then on lateral view of the lumbar spine, uh, we're seeing syndesmophyte formation bridging uh, the vertebral bodies. Here we're seeing uh, a, a, a higher power or view of uh, what we are looking at in the x-rays. So uh, on the, starting with the sacroiliac joints, uh, we uh, see uh, significant periarticular sclerosis, joint space narrowing, in fact, almost complete loss of, uh, of, of joint space. This is considered grade three. Grade four would be ankylosis of the sacroiliac joints. And if we move our uh, eye to the uh, uh, spine image, uh, we're seeing evidence of syndesmophyte formation, uh, uh, bridging of the vertebral bodies, uh, in a, uh, and this person is, is almost appearing as uh, the classic bamboo spine change. There's also something uh, known as shiny corners. We would look for that on the lateral view of the lumbar spine, uh, where uh, at the uh, annulus uh, for the uh, uh, intervertebral disc, uh, right at the corner of the vertebral body, we'll see light up, uh, which um, uh, looks shiny, uh, and then would be... Uh, uh, an enthesitis. Moving on to MRI scanning, uh, if, the, if, as I mentioned earlier, if the SI joints are normal on x-ray, if we have a high suspicion for uh, this representing an inflammatory immunologic 
uh, problem. Uh, if the patient is endorsing inflammatory back pain uh, criteria, such as uh, waking up in the middle of the night with pain or uh, pain uh, getting better with activity and worse with rest, uh, then uh, we uh, obtain, uh, order an MRI scan. Uh, note uh, that contrast is not necessary for this uh, particular uh, image. Uh, and what we're seeing here is evidence of uh, inflammatory light up in the bone adjacent to the sacroiliac joint, which uh, is uh, consistent with lymphocytic infiltration uh, in these areas. So, uh, uh, and that's seen in both images B and C, uh, and with more dramatic changes uh, noted on the patient's left uh, with erosive changes as well. Uh, and so we're looking for evidence of both damage and inflammation when we're looking at the uh, MRI scan. Philip, thanks for a great uh, summary of, yeah, thanks for a great summary of the radiographic and imaging findings in uh, axial spa. I'm going to turn to Alexis now, and, and Alexis, what are some of the pitfalls in interpreting MRI results? Overall, how can rheumatologists better assess patients with axial disease? Great question. So just as we talked about how we can miss the axial symptoms or axial um, disease by not imaging the right place, sometimes we can also overinterpret um, what's actually in front of us. So um, actually, before we even get to MRI, uh, on uh, plain films, one of the things that I sometimes see is some people being called ankylosing spondylitis when they actually have DISH. And then that might point you to a different diagnosis, too. So in terms of over-interpreting, over sometimes those flowing candle wax, syndesmophyte-looking things can be DISH, so something to also consider. Um, and then within the MRIs, it's interesting because actually even healthy individuals can have bone marrow edema, much less common erosions, but um, bone marrow edema can be seen in healthy individuals. Um, in particular, this is going to be in healthy individuals who have some other risk factor, and I'm going to talk about a couple of those risk factors. Um, so one of the key risk factors is actually marathon running or hockey playing, or even just actual rec recreational runners. So one really cool study that they did among hockey players and then a separate study among uh, recreational runners, they found that 30 to 40% of them actually had sacroiliac joint inflammation that looked like bone marrow edema, consistent with what you might call non-radiographic axial spa. So I think that's just a cautionary tale. So if we have a patient with back pain, we don't want to get MRIs of the sacroiliac joint in every patient with back pain. It really should be someone who has inflammatory back pain and kind of symptoms consistent with the diagnosis. So you want to think about what is the positive predictive value in this individual and how is this test going to change the likelihood that the patient actually has the disease. So here in this particular image, you can see um, some of that similar bone marrow edema as shown in the previous slides by Philip. And in the subsequent slide, um, one of the things that we see often as well is that if you're going to get an MRI of the pelvis in a postpartum woman who has back pain, a common clinical scenario, you may also find bone marrow edema that looks similar to non-radiographic AXPA. So I've actually seen a couple of these in my practice as well, patients who are six months out from having their baby and they've gotten an MRI of the pelvis and, and because they're HLA-B27 positive potentially or have something else that goes along with the disease. So they got the MRI and it's positive. So then the question is, what do you do with that bone marrow edema? Well, in, in, up to 46% uh, of uh, women with pregnancy-related low back pain in one study actually had similar changes, so bone marrow edema, sclerosis, and they even saw some erosions. 
But again, erosions are still going to point you more in the direction of axe spa. Erosions are less common in that healthy individual um, as opposed to the bone marrow edema. Um, and some, there, there's studies that suggest that this sticks around for up to 12, 9 to 12 months. Some studies have suggested it will last even further. So you have to be cautious in that postpartum woman who you're ordering an MRI of the pelvis for. Chris, can I jump in just a quick one here? I mean, <clears throat> uh, the other thing that will happen, of course, in some postpartum women is on plain X-ray of their sacroiliac joints, they can have this osteitis, condensans, ilii. That's another thing. I mean, apart from dish on plain X-ray being confused with ankylosing spondylitis, postpartum women <clears throat> or those who have actually had multiple uh, uh, births, they actually can have uh, these triangular uh, um, sclerosis on the iliac side lower quadrant of the sacroiliac joint and that sometimes is missed for sacroiliitis and again as uh, Alexis said the erosions um, are the ones which kind of generally differentiate in general between uh, the patient who has got an immune mediated destructive inflammatory lesion versus these kind of non-immune mediated things and in our 44 year old gentleman that I said he was an athlete and we also considered, and his MRI was done actually probably four or five months after that uh, Ironman Canada problem, well not problem, the race that he ran. But he had erosions, he had definite erosions, and that kind of clinched the diagnosis that this is not just related to that, and it had lasted for 18 months. So uh, thank you, Alex. This is the structural damage which kind of changes uh, the, um, the dynamic, whether this is really uh, pathologic or this is physiologic inflammation. One last quick point is that the ASAS uh, MRI group is coming up with new um, definitions and in this American College of Rheumatology annual meeting there are, uh, there are presentations related to that poster and oral presentations about th this definition is changing. What is positive MRI? Those definitions are changing and uh, I would uh, suggest our viewers to look specifically for how these definitions are changing. Right, and, and so you point out some really good points, which are osteitis condensis, I forgot to mention that, but also that it's not easy to define a positive MRI, and so it's critical to look at it yourself. So one of the things that one of the questions that Chris originally had was, what, what do you kind of make of this, or how do you put this together in terms of making a diagnosis? And one of the things I try to do is always look at the sacroiliac joint x-rays myself. Yep. Um, if I'm not sure, and especially when there's osteitis condensins called in a patient who you think could have axial spa, I talk with a radiologist at the very least yep. and make sure that they really think that's what it is given this particular clinical scenario. Yep. Yep. And yep. finally, um, MRIs, also looking at the MRIs yourselves because there's, um, there, it's not too hard once you kind of get the setting, kind of a general idea of what you're looking for. Right. Um, Walter Maximowicz has that website, Care Arthritis, um, yeah. where you can do all kinds of modules to learn how to read MRIs. And I, I found that very uh, helpful That's in terms right. of being able, comfortable looking at them myself. Yep, yep. Great point. Yep. Thank, you. Thank you, Alexis, and too. That was a great discussion. I'm going to turn to Philip now and ask him to share a case of a patient who experienced a delay in diagnosis of axial PSA. What clinical and imaging features did the patient present with? Thanks, Chris. This is a 45-year-old woman who has had a psoriasis since her mid-30s. Uh, she had some peripheral manifestations uh, suggestive of psoriatic arthritis diagnosed in her mid-40s, 
And she's been managing the psoriasis with topical agents or light therapy, and she's been managing the psoriatic arthritis symptoms uh, with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Interestingly, uh, throughout all of this, she's had ongoing back pain. This was something that she just simply attributed uh, to gradually getting older. Uh, and uh, she had never brought it up uh, with her dermatologist, who never asked her about it. Uh, and uh, then eventually she went to an orthopedist and a lumbar uh, spine uh, uh, was done, uh, which identified degenerative changes, uh, not, not too surprisingly. Uh, and uh, then uh, what happened is that her back pain was attributed uh, to these degenerative changes. However, uh, eventually, uh, the dermatologist and she uh, said, well, maybe we should get an uh, evaluation uh, by rheumatology. So uh, they referred her over to her, their uh, local friendly rheumatologist. Uh, and uh, we did uh, much of the workup that you have, we've just been walking through. Uh, that is obtaining uh, a, an x-ray of the pelvis, uh, which was unremarkable in the sacroiliac joints, uh, and then uh, moving on uh, to more advanced imaging, including MRI, uh, to uh, uh, finally uh, assess the fact that there was inflammation consistent uh, with axial psoriatic arthritis. So, thank you, Philip. Alexis, how common is axial PSA, and why do patients experience a delay in diagnosis of their axial involvement? Great question. So first, the, the estimates vary, and it depends on how you define PSA, which we're going to get to in a little bit. It's a challenging aspect in and of itself. But one study within Corona suggested about 12.5% of patients with psoriatic arthritis have either a diagnosis of uh, PSA by uh, imaging or by the clinician saying that they have PSA. There's a quote that 2 to 5% of patients with psoriatic arthritis have axial disease only. You know, some, I think that group of patients is a difficult group of patients in and of itself because sometimes they're called axpa with psoriasis. So um, that's difficult to know what, you can say what proportion, but how many of those patients differs on how they're called. And then one of the interesting studies from Canada suggested that 15% uh, of patients who didn't have axpsa at baseline developed the disease over the course of the 10 years in their axial joints. So why is it that we're not catching this right away? Or why do you think, you know, why might it be that we're um, undercapturing axial disease? Well, number one is that there's not a great definition for axial PSA, as we just mentioned, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Number two is that patients may not have symptomatic axial disease. Up to half of patients with axial PSA don't really, aren't really bothered by their axial symptoms. So um, that's not the, what they're coming to you for. They're coming to you often because they have swollen joints that are painful, or they're just kind of having lots of areas of pain, and that's not really the key area for them. So you're kind of going with what you're, you're, you're treating their current symptoms that they're telling you about, maybe not knowing that they have axial symptoms. Um, so I think there's a lot to think about in terms of what, how we should go about identifying axial PSA. And one of, the, one of the ways to do that is just to get imaging for everybody, the axial of the sacroiliac joints, for example. But then, you know, there's discussion about resource utilization and stuff there. So I think this is still a challenging area. Alexis, how is axial PSA clinically differentiated from axial disease in AXPA? 
This is a great question, and Philip and I have been kind of discussing this as well as in some of our work together. Um, the question is, is it different? And we don't really know very well if it's, if it's different. There are a lot of, there's some little features here and there that are different. Um, they have a lot of overlapping features. So if you just take ACSPA and PSA, a group of patients with ACSPA and a group of patients with PSA, and follow them over time, you see that a good proportion of each group feels, fulfills the criteria for the other group. So let's say about 20% in each group. Um, so they truly are kind of overlapping circles in a Venn diagram. And back to you, Chris. Thanks, Alexis. This next question is for Philip. How are demographic, genetic, clinical, and imaging features different between AXPA and axial PSA? So Chris, this has become quite a interesting and uh, focused topic uh, uh, in the last uh, short while because we're, we're beginning to see that there are uh, meaningful differences, but as Alexis has mentioned, a considerable overlap as well. And let, let's walk through some of these. Uh, so for example, uh, we know that uh, patients who present with axial PSA uh, present a bit later in their disease. So unlike the uh, uh, radiographic axial SPA patient or ankylosing spondylitis patient who presents as a younger male in their late mid to late 20s, uh, we're seeing uh, PSA patients have um, their peripheral manifestations of PSA begin initially, and then later on in their late 30s, 40s, they're developing their axial PSA manifestations at a time like our patient that we just uh, walked through, uh, who, uh, uh, where you, you get confused and attribute her symptoms to degenerative arthritis in the spine. And it's not until we see the characteristic MRI changes of, uh, of axial PSA that we ended up moving her on uh, to effective therapy, uh, effective biologic therapy, which made such a huge difference to her. Uh, she's also characteristic in that she's female. And we uh, see that in axial PSA, there's more likely going to be either equal numbers of males and females or more females uh, involved uh, that, uh, as compared to ankylosing spondylitis, which is predominantly male. Uh, uh, genetics are different. We know that, for example, HLA-B27 is about four times less likely uh, to be positive uh, in an axial PSA population than in an ankylosing spondylitis patient. The latter, you should be, see more than 80%. The former, we typically see somewhere around 20 to 30%, depending upon the cohort, uh, being B27 positive. But that also uh, opens the door to some other interesting observations. For example, the group from Dublin uh, working together with uh, Bob Winchester in New York uh, identified uh, that there were a, a, a number of patients who were HLA-B8 positive, and they had an interesting feature of asymmetric sacroiliitis uh, if they had sacroiliitis. So one side might be quite involved and the other side not at all. Uh, the, there are a number of clinical features that are uh, quite different. Uh, the patients with psoriatic arthritis may actually not even present with back pain. They may be asymptomatic despite showing uh, imaging evidence uh, of, of a uh, spondylitis condition. They also tend to have better uh, 
movement capabilities. So when you do measures of spine mobility, they're less involved or less severe than the patients with ankylosing spondylitis. And in a similar way, when we apply various axial disease activity scores, like BASTI, for example, we find uh, that the patients uh, with uh, axial PSA may be a bit better. Uh, The physicians consider that the same. Uh, They often are less likely to be treated with biologics, even though they could well benefit from them. Uh, They tend to have more uh, evidence of peripheral arthritis than patients with uh, ankylosing spondylitis, Uh, but they do have a similar prevalence of enthesitis. And when we look on uh, x-rays or imaging of the pelvis area, we find that generally the sacroiliac joints may not be as involved. They may end up being grade one or two. They may be asymmetric with one side being involved and the other not, or they may not be involved at all. Uh, And uh, there's a substantial cohort of axial PSA patients who have completely normal SI joints, but their spine may be involved, including their cervical spine. Here are some uh, imaging differences to point out uh, between uh, patients with axial PSA and axial spondyloarthritis. On the left, we're seeing a a patient uh, with asymmetric sacroiliitis, where on this patient's right, uh, it is a grade two change, and on the left, it's a grade four change, meaning it's ankylosed. Uh, When we look at the spine, we see uh, some what are called chunky, non-marginal syndesmophytes forming, uh, and they are not as symmetric as we tend to see uh, in classic radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. There may be some parts of the uh, vertebral column that are involved and others that are not at all involved. Uh, And we also see more frequent fusion of cervical facet joints. So I I can think of several patients in my practice where they have very prominent cervical disease, but much less in the way of lumbar or no sacroiliac involvement. And on the axial spondyloarthritis side, we tend to see more symmetry uh, between the sacroiliac joints, uh, and this is associated with B27 positivity. The sacroiliitis tends to be worse. Uh, And then you see the uh, characteristic marginal syndesmophytes that are uh, that are ossifying uh, the, uh, the vertebral column uh, and uh, this characteristic bamboo spine change. Atul, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, um, thanks, Philip. So I'll, uh, most of these things you have covered already, I will start from the cervical spine and then go further down. Um, Philip already mentioned this. I have <clears throat> patients with psoriatic arthritis who have axial involvement and Philip already said, completely normal sacroiliac joint, but they have involvement of their cervical spine. And this is not uncommon. That could be a isolated involvement in patients with axial PSA. So a psoriatic arthritis patient complaining of neck pain, we should look at x-rays of their cervical spine because you might actually find a chunky uh, syndesmophyte there. And um, <clears throat> one of the things which uh, Alexis mentioned earlier also, was that this kind of happens a little bit later, I mean, in the early stages, and patients have multiple peripheral symptoms. And with psoriatic arthritis, we are also more sort of concerned about their MCP joint and PIP joints and DIP joints and ankles and knees and enthesitis. 
we forget to ask them about the axial skeleton. And this could be one of the major involvements which can affect their quality of life quite adversely. So starting from the top, as shown here in this figure, in the cervical spine, there is more frequent cervical spine involvement may be isolated in axial PSA, very, very rare in axial SPA. Philip has already said about the chunky syndesmophytes and paravertebral ossification and asymmetric syndesmophytes in axial PSA. In, in the thoracic spine of axial SPA, there is marginal syndesmophyte, they are symmetric and these are kind of very nice and um, uh, not, not as chunky. If you look at the lumbar spine, there is more frequent fusion of facet joints and HLA-B27 involvement, HLA-B27 will be positive in about 90% of the patients who are axial SPA. In axial PSA again, HLA-B27 is less common. Syndesmophytes may again occur in the absence of sacroiliitis and in the sacroiliac joints themselves, axial SPA would have more symmetric, more severe, whereas in axial PSA, it will be less, uh, less symmetric, it will be more asymmetric. And this point has been made already that HLA-B08, uh, this particular genotype uh, in psoriatic arthritis patients have asymmetric uh, sacroiliitis rather than symmetric sacroiliitis. The inflammatory, going back to in fact presentation, inflammatory back pain that I spoke about earlier, inflammatory back pain is less common, interestingly, in axial PSA, their back pain might sound mechanical. Uh, so that inflammatory back pain is just the way the patient expresses their back pain and the way you understand it. So lower frequency of inflammatory back pain, older age at presentation, and generally the presentation is peripheral more and then axial. The later part of their, their, their psoriatic arthritis career, they have more axial involvement. Whereas, of course, in axial SPA, uh, it's younger age. Uh, we already uh, covered that also earlier. Chris. Alexis, a consensus definition is currently under development in psoriatic arthritis. What do the members of ASAS Grapha consider to be the most distinguishing features of axial PSA? Great question. So a few years ago, uh, Grappa and ASAS both recognized that the definition of AXPSA needs to be defined and there needs to be consensus on what is this definition so that we can better understand the epidemiology and better identify axial PSA. So they've been working together over the last couple years to develop these definitions um, through prospective cohort studies and a variety of other imaging studies, for example. So it, it's still under development, but the preliminary thoughts about an axial PSA definition are that it would include imaging, and we're still waiting to figure out what those imaging features are that are most specific and um, most helpful for this diagnosis. And then a definition for back pain. So uh, that's, again, something that they're working on. So th there's probably going to be two components of this in the setting of uh, defined PSA. Great. Thank you, Alexis. So, Chris, <clears throat> if I could just uh, add... Uh, we're very excited about this project going forward. Uh, and it's a, a, a wonderful example of a collaboration between two organizations. Uh, I've had uh, great uh, coordination with Dennis Podubny and, uh, and uh, uh, Desiree Vanderheide and so on with, uh, as we are uh, beginning to, about to launch uh, in this next year, this, uh, 
study of uh, probably uh, uh, it will end up being over 400 patients where we carefully identify and then come up with a classification criteria for axial PSA, which I think is going to be so important as we move forward into doing studies specific for those patients. Great point. Thanks, Philip. So this has been a, a really marvelous discussion. And to summarize, IL-23 dependent and independent sources of IL-17 play a key role in both axial PSA and axial SPA. Axial involvement is an important feature of both AX SPA and AX PSA. And imaging is an essential component of assessing AX SPA and AX PSA. Patients with axial involvement may experience a delay in rheumatology consultation and diagnosis. Axial disease in AX SPA and AX uh, PSA share various similarities and differences. Consensus definition of AX-PSA is anticipated. There are common features in SPA patients with axial disease. Early recognition is crucial to improve outcomes and quality of life in patients. With that, again, I want to thank my, uh, the speakers uh, tonight, and I want to thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. This program was sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs. If you missed any part of this discussion, visit ReachMD.com slash ACR 2020. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.